I know nothing about vector calculus, but I do know enough about award-winning novelist and WGA and Oscar nominee Richard Price and WGA and Oscar winner Steve Zalian that neither of them commits a single word to a script that does not serve the plot, characters and theme of their stories. Which is why we need to pay very close attention to the opening scene of their recent collaboration, the HBO limited series, The Night Of. Stokes' theorem is the remarkable statement that the line integral of f along c is equal to the flux integral of the curl of f through the surface s, which we know is the surface integral of the normal component of the curl along the surface s. A quick introduction of Stokes' theorem is hardly what you would call a grabber. All it appears to do is establish that Nazar Khan, played by Reza Ahmed, is a calculus student. By way of comparison, let's listen to the opening scene in the original BBC series on which it is based, Criminal Justice. be able to tell it from the sounds, but the images show us Ben Coulter, a young white Englishman played by Ben Whishaw, playing football with his friends. Then we see Ben in his bedroom getting ready to go out for the night. Criminal Justice was written by Peter Moffat, who, prior to winning a BAFTA for the series, had served as a barrister. No doubt his experience in the profession informed him for future assignments such as Kavanagh QC, North Square and Silk. Here is Moffat detailing the need for extensive research over high-concept premise. So I know about it because I used to be a barrister and I spent 10 years at the criminal bar, so I've done you know, lots of cases and so on. And um, the key thing for me is it really, really important before you start to talk about something, do as much work as you can on it. So you know, deep research, do all the thinking, do all the research, so that when you have that conversation in the coffee bar, you really know what you're talking about. I think the wrong way around is to have a conversation in a coffee bar with a commissioner and decide that this is a great idea and then plan when the first episode is going to be delivered. Yet, for all his research on criminal justice, Moffat was harking back to some high-concept premises for minor 1940s and 50s Hollywood noirs, where a man is accused of murder but cannot prove his innocence because he has no recollection of his whereabouts at the time of the killing. Specifically, Fear in the Night, The Clay Pigeon and The Long Wait a variation of which was used in 1986 for The Morning After, starring Jane Fonda and Jeff Bridges, and directed by Sidney Lumet. Listen, Jackie, I just woke up with a dead guy. You got more serious problems than lousy lovers, believe me. No. I mean dead, Jackie. This man is cold. You're kidding me. I'm looking at he had a heart attack? Yeah, from a knife in his chest. And there's, there's blood all over. Christ, Alex. Should I call the... Should I call the cops? In transposing Moffat's London-based series to New York, Price and Zalian obviously had to make changes. But why did they choose to open their version with electron calculus, let alone an introduction to one of the subject's more abstruse theorems? 
It is sometimes the temptation of screenwriters, when setting a scene in college, to pay tribute to their former tutors or mentors, or inspirational authors and novels. That way, the students end up discussing an acclaimed piece of literature. But unless Price and Zalian are calculus graduates, that idea does not apply here. No, it has nothing to do with homage, and everything to do with the theme. Stokes' theorem was a question asked by Irish mathematician and physicist George Stokes as part of an exam he set his Cambridge students in 1854. As crude a definition as ever presented, Stokes' theorem concerns integration of differential forms on topographical space, and the integration is both a simplification and generalisation of other theorems. All of which may sound very arcane, and to non-calculus students it is, but for the purpose of the television series, all we need to know is that it acknowledges the simplifications and generalizations that are all too often applied to suspects, criminals, victims, the police, the judiciary, and everyone else in between. The suspect in the night of is Nazar Khan, a young American man born in Queens, New York, to Pakistani parents. Price and Zalian's changing of our central character's ethnicity smoothly synchronizes the story with New York's post-9-11 realities. A far cry from the comparatively ahistorical atmosphere of Moffat's original. Although broadcast in June 2008, scant references are made to the series of attacks that terrorised London on July 7, 2005. So, by opening with Naz attending a calculus lecture, Price and Zalian drew a line in the sand, on which one side is Moffat's series A Legal Drama, and on their own side, a social drama. Of course, it doesn't become clear to the audience until the second episode that the series will not be focusing exclusively on whether Naz committed murder. It is more focused on, well, as is repeatedly said throughout the eight episodes. If we instead would like to see a young man with no criminal record turned into a criminal, then let's have him sit at Rikers as long as the slow wheels of justice take. But more than detailing the slow wheels of justice, the series' overall trajectory shows how a person can be born into one environment, yet become the product of another. Another thing that separates HBO's The Night Of from BBC's Criminal Justice is the way Zalian and Price fully exploit the various devices television has at its disposal. I don't mean the luxury of 10 hours of screen time, which affords them the extra narrative space to flesh out the characters, develop subplots and explore rich themes. I mean things that are fundamental to the filmic scheme what we see and what we hear. What we see engages Catherine George's costume design, Lester Cohen's production design and Robert Ellsworth's cinematography. No matter what clothes are worn, the materials always absorb more light than they reflect and the colours are always muted. No matter where we are, Rikers Island, the courthouse, Naz's cab or the crime scene, the spaces always feel smaller than they are. And no matter where the camera is pointing, our view is quite often obscured. It is not just prison bars, half-open doors, hallways, corridors, dark corners or dusty windows that get in our way. The lenses Robert Ellswood uses often have a very narrow focal range, all of which aggregates to a deep sense of claustrophobia. As the slow wheels of justice grind on, the space gets tighter 
and it is more and more difficult to find room to breathe. None of which helps Naz's asthma, which has blighted his life, but nowhere as much as the bigotry meted out against people of darker skin tones, immigrants and sons and daughters of immigrants in the wake of 9-11. I was in fifth grade when the towers came down. I didn't understand why I was getting beat up. Where my little brother was when my dad got jumped in his cab twice. Pakistani kids, North African, any type of Muslim, it was a slaughterhouse. You try to fight back, it only made it worse. I didn't have a fight with Steve Diaz, I just shoved him down those stairs. Why? Because I just did. I wish I could tell you something else, but I just did it. It was just like, like pushing open a door. You just push it. As for what we hear, Zalian hired in award-winning sound designers Roy Garcia and Wyatt Sprague to ensure that every sound, dialogue, music and the natural ambience immerses us within the environment. All of which reinforces the sense that people are affected by their surroundings and circumstances. Nas begins as a diligent A-grade student and then, because of a simple but serious error of judgement, finishes up as a graduate of Rikers Island with a shaved head tattoos and a drug habit instead of a college degree. Of course, Zalian and Price never have anyone say anything as crudely as that. In fact, quite often, no one says anything at all, which means that for several consecutive scenes, the only sounds that we hear are the likes of these. Which is ironic, considering Richard Price is a writer famed for the authenticity of his dialogue. I mean, I hear people in my, I mean, when I'm writing, I hear people. It's basically, it's, I do improv. And, uh, you know, look, look, I'll be out on the street and I'll, I'll pick up the, you know, the rhythm of, but it's not like, it's not anthropology. It's not like I'm trying to get the glossary right. Either you have it or you don't. Um, a lot of writers find other parts, uh, other elements of writing a lot easier than I do. I'm a terrible time you know, writing the King's English. I mean, I, I couldn't punctuate a four-word sentence if my life depended on it. Here is Stephen Zalian explaining why he did not want that much dialogue. I, I write a lot of short scenes. I don't write a lot of, you know, five-page dialogue scenes. Um, writing is often, there's no dialogue. I mean, you saw that in this. I mean, there's, we go for about 10 minutes and there's virtually no dialogue. And. You know, some people forget that that's, I mean, that's not the director, you know, necessarily. That's, that was written. And, and you know, so I'm, I'm very conscious of that. Some of my, the favorite, my favorite things that I've written are, are things that don't have dialogue. Over the course of 10 hours, several red herrings are thrown in, and numerous characters who are introduced as minor to become something much more substantive. For instance, Freddie Knight. Played by Michael Kenneth Williams, previously celebrated for his portrayal of Omar in the award-winning series The Wire, Knight begins as the overlord on Rikers Island, who appears to use everyone to maintain his status. But he takes Naz under his wing because, in Freddie's own words, Naz is a unicorn, the personification of what Freddie holds to be his greatest achievement. Not his boxing title, not his family. Let me show you something. Out of all of this, what am I most proud of? Yeah. 
That's right. See, most convicts, I mean, they got any kind of paper at all. It's some study in your cell at night, GED bullshit. See me, I like school. So I did it right. Likewise, we have Chandra Kapoor. Played by Amara Karan, we first meet her as a mid-grade assistant in the open plan office of Crone Associates, one of New York's highest powered law firms. But it is Chandra who ends up utterly committed to securing Naz's acquittal. She told me to come in here and talk some sense into you, but if I were you, I would ask myself one question. Did I kill her? If the answer is yes, take the deal. If it's no, don't. The casting of these great actors is crucial because they have so little star baggage that when we first see them, we are not predisposed to assume what they will bring and how much influence they will have on Naz's fate. Which brings us to John Turturro, who plays Naz's defence lawyer, John Stone. His introduction is delayed until the very end of episode one. But once he appears... I want to tell you something, and it's the most important thing you'll ever hear in your entire life, so don't not hear it. Shut it. They come up with their story. We come up with ours. The jury gets to decide which they like best. Now, the good news is we get to hear what their story is first before we have to tell them ours. So we keep our mouths shut until we know what they're doing. You keep saying story like I'm making it up. I want to tell you the truth. You really, you really don't. I don't want to be stuck with the truth. Yet, for all of Tatura's star power, Stones' character is in pursuit of one thing. Not justice for his client and not companionship. Not even the respect of his son. More than anything, Stone dreams of walking into court wearing a pair of leather lace-up shoes. For Stone, that one moment will mark his release from his own life sentence. It's eczema. Dermatologist says keep them aerated. Like that's going to cure anything. The night of is all low-key and very well handled, avoiding so many of the grandstanding cliches that are the bread and butter of so many legal, cop and crime shows. However, that does not mean it has been free from criticism. One widespread complaint centres on Chandra Kapoor's sudden and seemingly inexplicable foolishness in the final two episodes. I believe that needs to be contextualised, so let us consider a few other characters who, on the surface at least, appear to be rational, intelligent and responsible. Take Detective Box, played by Bill Camp. He has served with the NYPD for over a quarter of a century, and he lives to see his retirement in episode 7. In that same episode, while he is on the stand, Kapoor reveals to the jury that Box tampered with evidence by removing it from the crime scene. Naz's inhaler, which he gave to him in the holding cell. Why did Box do that? Likewise, Stone knows that the one thing that can set off his eczema is exposure to cats. Yet, he gives one refuge in his apartment. Why does he do that? Because it is in his nature? Because it is a character trait that signifies his incurable belief in justice? Because justice does not bring respite, but really prolongs suffering? And what about Naz, model student, obedient son, who decides to take his father's car without permission and decides to pick up a fare and... They each look like mistakes, but all of them, Chandra kissing Naz, Box giving Naz's inhaler, Stone caring for the cat, Naz agreeing to give what turned out to be a fatal fare, 
they are all acts of kindness. Is it a case of the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Maybe, but my point is this. The entire series springs from someone making a mistake. Why? It is human nature. Nature. Environment. We are all products of it.